Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy Well, um, controversy. Who here loves controversy? Any of you people that are like, I just love to kind of get into it, anybody? Some of you, I know, you, yeah, thank you, Dave. I knew Dave Frankie. I, I was going to point him out if he didn't raise his hand because, because Dave's one of those kind of controversy kind of guys. How many of you just would rather just avoid controversy altogether and kind of bury your head in the sand and just ignore it? And if there's some sort of controversy going on, you're like, I just don't want to hear about it. How many of you, be honest, are a bit of a conspiracy theorist? Oh, yeah, okay, we got one admitting in the back. Yeah, we got a few, yeah. I, I, I can sometimes run the edge a little bit of conspiracy theorists, very little bit, um, a little bit here and there, but uh, how many of you are just people that you just, uh, Dave, you'd put your hand up for this one as well, you just like to stir the pot. You don't care what it's about. You just want to stir the pot, and you just want to poke and prod. Yeah, there's a few of you that are like that. Well, this morning, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see controversial Christ. That's what we're going to see this morning. Controversial Christ. Uh, you see, we're going to see three instances where conflict arises between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's over things that in their day, and actually some of them even in our day currently, are somewhat controversial. Uh, but they're really all characterized, or, or you can maybe say set up or kind of presented like a two-year-old in a lot of ways. And how would that be? How has it started? What, what's a two-year-old's favorite word, a toddler's favorite word? Not no. Yeah, someone else said it. Why? Why? There you go. Why? 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 Do this. Why? And that's what's going to characterize it this morning. Some of you are just, you were told no too often, I think, as a kid. No. Um, listen, if you have a Bible, you need a Bible. There's Bibles in the seat backs all around you. Grab a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark. It's going to be about uh, three quarters or four fifths, if you want to put it that way, through the Bible, towards the back of the Bible. And uh, as a church, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, from the start of a book to the end of that book. And we are currently studying the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 this morning. Why don't we pray before we look at controversial Christ? Well, Father, I, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you, God, that it transcends time. Uh, Lord, that it applies today just as much as, much as it applies when it was written two to 3,000 years ago, depending on the book. Lord, we're so grateful for all that you have given us in your word. May you teach us today. May we have open eyes and ears and hearts. And, um, and ultimately, Jesus, we want to look more like you. And so help us, God, as we study and as we learn today to leave this place looking more like you. We love you and we thank you so much. Amen. All right, let's jump right into the conflict, the controversy. And right off the top, we're going to see this. It's controversial connections. That's the first thing that we're going to see. Chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 13. Uh, where we left off the last time we were in the Gospel of Mark last week. 
says this, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So if you remember, he's already called some disciples. If you remember, there was four fishermen. That was back in, in chapter 1 where he called these four fishermen to follow him. Uh, there was Simon who became Peter. There was his brother Andrew. And then there was James and his brother John. And these four fishermen have started to follow Jesus. A little bit kind of like, okay, why did he call those guys? Here, this is a little bit weird because now he's calling a tax collector to follow him. Tax collectors, basically, they were Jews, but they were basically traitors. They were so bad in the eyes of other Jews that they didn't even consider them a Jew anymore. That's how bad a tax collector was. They collected taxes for Rome. They basically were sleeping with the enemy is what was going on. Today, it'd be like somebody that works for the government. It gets worse, okay? They work for the government. Not just that they work for the government. They work for the government, and they collect taxes for the government off of your paycheck, But here's the thing, they are allowed to collect taxes and they're also allowed to collect a little extra for their expenses, if you know what I mean. However, these people were known to collect a lot more than just a little for their expenses, to cover their expenses. Uh, The way it worked is Rome would require a certain amount of taxes, kind of like per quarter or per half a year, whatever it would be. So let's say it's like they say to to Levi, they say, Levi, we need uh, 500 denarii by the end of, you know, the end of December. Okay, no problem. And so what Levi would do is begin to collect taxes from the Jews on different things, different ways that they had for collecting taxes, which we'll see in a moment. But whatever he collected above that 500 denarii went into his pocket, right? So you can see how these, these, these were not very uh, liked people. In fact, they, they, they weren't just traitors. They were considered to be corrupt traitors. <laughs> uh, they were so despised, they were often excommunicated from the synagogue, They couldn't even attend any sort of corporate worship or gathering. They'd be a disgrace to their family. Nobody liked a tax collector. Nobody, except Jesus. Jesus loved Levi, and and so he calls Levi to follow him. Even if you think of these, these first disciples that are following Jesus, there's four fishermen at this point that are following Jesus, it would be very controversial even for them, for Jesus to have called Levi to follow and to join their group of disciples. In fact, Uh, one of the reasons that Levi had a tax booth, where was it? Where does the text say that Jesus was walking? You open your Bibles so you can read them. By the sea. Now, why did Levi have a tax booth by the sea? It's actually the Lake of Galilee is what it would be, but they call it the Sea of Galilee. He had a tax booth there because one of the primary ways that they collected taxes was off of the fish that were caught. And so you now have four fishermen that are joining with a tax collector. So, so you can imagine this at this point. Uh, you know, Jesus, can you imagine the introduction? Oh, Peter, I guess at this point he's still Simon. Simon, have you met Levi before? And, and, and Simon looks and he sees Levi and he's like, no, 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 not him. Anybody but him. You can't have this guy follow. He can't be one of the disciples. Yeah, of course they knew each other. Why? Because Levi had basically stolen money from Peter in the past, in a sense, taken his taxes, taken his money. He'd ripped them off. But here's the thing, Jesus isn't concerned about who gets along with who or who can't be with who in a small group. He's not concerned about that because everybody needs him. And everybody can be transformed into a new life and a new person through Jesus, through Christ. In fact, you guys all know Levi. You've read some of his work. Who did Levi become known as? Matthew. Matthew, the author of the first 
gospel in the New Testament. Matthew, you see, we may all have our differences. We may have different backgrounds. We may all have different struggles even. Maybe we have nothing in common. We might not even agree with one another. But in Christ, we are all family and we are all connected. We all have Christ in common. And the disciples would be totally shocked by this calling to call Levi to follow him. He would be shocked, in fact. In fact, they were shocked. In fact, later in the Gospels, you know that um, there's a time where, where he's talking about how hard it is for those to follow Christ, to enter the kingdom. And they actually say to him, well, then who can be saved? And what is Jesus' response? With man, it's, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In fact, we might think, oh, I'm pretty good. It wasn't hard to save me. You were horrible. You were really hard to save. In fact, you know, the cost for you to be saved was somebody dying in your place on the cross, Jesus. We all are in that same boat. I remember, you know, sometimes we're shocked at who comes to the Lord. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I was, th- I was actually, I always preached through my sermon ahead of time. And I was preaching through it this morning. I was saying, yeah, like 10 years ago. I'm like, 10 years ago? No, that was more than that. Because I've been here like 13 years almost. And I was like, I guess 15 years, no, 15 years ago we moved here. It was like 25 years ago that I was a youth pastor. You know what that means? It means you guys are getting old. But I remember when I was a youth pastor, like 25 years ago, um, I had a youth group full of a bunch of skateboarders. There were all these skaters and snowboarders, and, and um, they really liked this one guy that, that was the same age as name. His name was Ryan Sheckler. Some of you maybe have heard of Ryan Sheckler. This is Ryan Sheckler. And um, he's smiling now, but years ago, he wasn't much of a smiler. Um, he was a horrible influence on my youth. He was a professional skateboarder who at the age of 13 one like was winning everything like he was one of the top in the world at 13 he's beating adults and uh, just a phenomenal so all my youth who were like 13 idolized ryan sheckler they all looked up to ryan sheckler but ryan sheckler very quickly first couple years it's all fantastic but as soon as he got his driver's license it was horrible you know he had his own tv show he i mean he just grew in fame and started to go a little bit um not the best influence we'll just say that and i didn't really like that my youth loved and idolized Ryan Sheckler. I was like, oh man, this kid. Well, I, I, I thought this guy's just trouble. About a month ago, I'm, uh, I'm on YouTube. I don't remember what I'm looking up, but you know how it has in your algorithms, it knows things that you'll watch. And so I see on the side, it says, SoCal, Southern California, Men's Conference, Ryan Sheckler. And I'm like, SoCal Men's Conference? That's totally a Christian thing, guaranteed. And, and sure enough, I click on it. It's, it's a Calvary Chapel conference, which some of you are aware of. It's a large fellowship of churches in the States. Fabulous, fabulous uh, churches. And Ryan Sheckler is one of the speakers at the conference. And he's sharing his story of how he came to faith in Christ and what God has done in his life and how he's now married and has like a one-year-old kid. And I was like, it's one of those things where it's like, wow, wow, who God can save? No one is impossible. No one is impossible. I just want to say this. Don't ever write anybody off. I'm sure that, that the fishermen, they thought Levi, a tax collector, how could they ever come to Christ? How could anyone like that ever follow him? Don't ever write anyone off. Don't ever give up on anyone. You know what? If Levi can come to the Lord, if Ryan Sheckler can come to the Lord, if Dave Frankie can come to the Lord, anyone can be saved. Amen, Dave? Amen. That's right. <laughs> Listen, it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how controversial your past may be. Christ calls you, you need to know this this morning, Christ calls you to follow him. He calls you to follow him. He wants to give you a new life and a new reason to live. Well, Matthew, who became Levi, he, or rather Levi, who became Matthew, uh, wants all his friends to know about Jesus. And so what does he do? Look what he does, verse 15. 
It says, as he, and as he, speaking of Jesus, reclined at table in his house, Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, now Levi probably couldn't get all these tax collectors and, quote, sinners to come to a Bible study, so what does he do? He throws a dinner party, right? Why not? That's a great idea, right? He throws it, and, and now we see it's not just one tax collector that's following Jesus, but it actually says here in the text that many are now beginning to follow Jesus. And in fact, there's many sinners as well. And you might go, sinners, what, what does it mean by that? Aren't we all in that same boat as a description being sinners? Technically, before Christ, yes, we are. But sinners specifically here was speaking about it was Jews that had broken the law. That's what the term here actually specifically means. Jews that had broken the law of God, whether it was unknowingly or knowingly, and had in some way also been kind of cast out from the rest of the Jewish community. So these were outcasts. You've got tax collectors and you've got sinners. So Jews that aren't really concerned about observing the law of Moses. And so they're, they're kind of excluded from the congregation. And so naturally they begin to hang out with one another. But we read here that many of them began to follow Jesus. And everyone's happy, aren't they? Everyone's happy. This is fantastic what's going on. Well, not everyone's happy because there's others that found Jesus' connections kind of controversial as well. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why, notice that word, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, scribes and Pharisees, these guys, these are some of the primary antagonists in Jesus' ministry. If you read the scriptures at all, you're going to see these guys pop up all the time and they're attacking Jesus in some way or another, trying to trap him, trying to catch him. The scribes and the Pharisees, sometimes we think of them as being priests. They were not priests. They were not actually connected to the temple in any sort of way like that. The scribes and the Pharisees, they, we don't know exactly when they rose. Most scholars think they came up around the time of Ezra. And Ezra, of course, was right around that time of the exile when, when the Jews had been kicked out of the land and they were in the Babylonian captivity. There was a group of other Jews at that time that realized, that, honestly, the Pharisees and the scribes actually came out of a good thing, in a sense. They realized the reason that they were in exile was because they had disobeyed the laws of God. That's what they'd done. They disobeyed the laws of God. And so they reasoned or they thought that, hey, if we can get everybody to simply obey God's law, perhaps this exile is going to end. That was their thinking. That's not a bad way to think, technically. Right? And so at this point, the Pharisees are thinking, well, we're back in the land, but we're under Roman occupation. And so they're thinking at this point, the Pharisees and the scribes was, again, if we can just get everybody to obey God's law, perhaps God will bring prosperity back to the land and the Romans will be kicked out. And so their, their thought was to try to get everybody to obey God's law. And what they would do, though, is, is the thing is, is that they were super passionate and zealous about keeping God's word. But they were also super passionate and zealous about you and everybody else keeping God's word. Do, do you see where this started to kind of bring a conflict? And so they wanted everybody to follow God's word. And, and so at this point, they, for a great teacher like Jesus, that's how they thought him. They viewed him as a good teacher. To be with those that weren't really, you know, super crazy or, or, or concerned about obeying the law of God, they, they felt that it reflected on Jesus, that he was kind of soft on sin, right? You can't be holy and around the unholy. That was their thinking. You can't. They, it's like oil and water. It doesn't mix. But that's not the truth. Jesus is going to clear that up. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, 
but sinners. Jesus equates himself here to a physician, to a doctor. He says, I'm here not for the healthy, but for the sick. Those who are sick with, what's, what's the sickness that they have? Sin. And that's everybody, all of us. And so, of course, Jesus, Dr. Jesus, is going to have some controversial connections, isn't he? Right? He's going to have to. He's going to have to have some controversial connections because how else can he make a sick person well? Think of a doctor who never wants to be around sick people. Wouldn't that be a little strange? If you are sick one day, you go to see your doctor, you come into the door, and he's like, whoa, 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 are you sick? Yeah, that's why I'm here. Don't, you, don't go a step further. You're trying to kill me? Stay out of my office, right? What would you be like? This is the weirdest doctor ever. They don't want to be around a sick person. That's their whole point, right? Now, here's the thing. The problem is, is that not everybody realizes all the time that they're sick, do they? Sometimes people feel, how many of you have heard about or know of somebody perhaps that felt pretty good and then, you know, for years and years just went along, God, I had this funny little thing in my stomach, this little pain, and then finally they're like, you know, it got so bad, all of a sudden it got really bad I had to go to the doctor and the doctor's like, you've been sick for years with this. You've got like a week to live. Have you ever heard of those? Right, we think we're okay. Right, we've all heard of that. Well, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they felt that they were they were holy and that they were healthy in themselves. They were good. Others were bad. They were pretty good. They were pretty good. Others, yeah, you know, they could use a bit of help. But the Bible is totally clear. Romans 3.10 tells us this, that there is no one righteous, not even one. Not even one. Nobody is right in right standing before God. In fact, Romans 3.23 tells us that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The standard that God has set, nobody meets the standard. And the truth is that a doctor can really only help those that know that they need help and that come to him. Isn't that the truth? Right? If, if you don't ever go to the doctor, if you for years and years and years have this pain but you never go to the doctor, you feel pretty good and you never go, the doctor can't help you. You know, there's others as well that maybe they know that they're sick. So there's some that don't come to the doctor because they think they're okay. They can make it. They can push through. Right? How many of you, how many of you tried to push through before and then you end, end up at the doctor? Any of you? Right? Yeah, there's a lot of you. I know that you, you're, I can get better. I'll be just fine. And then, you know, you get to the doctor and like, why didn't you come earlier? So there's those kind of people. But then there's other people that actually know that they're sick. I have some serious issues, they think. But I can't get in to see my doctor. It's such a long wait. Or they think, I can't afford the medication, so what's even the point of going to see my doctor? You know, isn't this the great thing about Dr. Jesus, the great physician? I mean, think about it. He's perfect in his diagnosis. He's perfect in his cure. He's always available. There's no wait list to, to see Dr. Jesus. And he even makes house calls. Do you know that? And the best thing to top it all off, he pays the bill. He's not crazy. What a great physician. And, but this is why Dr. Jesus was with the tax collectors and the sinners. Because they were sick and they needed him. And I want you to think about this this morning. Who do you relate more with today? The tax collector and the sinner or the scribe and the Pharisee. I'll be honest, sometimes I relate more to the Pharisee. Honestly, I really do. I feel like I've got it kind of together and I try to keep my life together. And yeah, I'll put it this way. Maybe think of it this way. How many controversial connections do you maybe have? Jesus had a bunch of controversial connections. How many controversial connections do you have? Or do you just live in a little Christian bubble? I think we're all a little bit guilty of this from time to time. Have you ever thought of doing something like maybe throwing what as sometimes is described as a Matthew party? 
A Matthew party, which is what Levi did, Levi who became Matthew, throws a party, what? To introduce people to Jesus. But you know, the beautiful thing about this party is that it's not just a whole bunch of Christians. It's not all of disciples of Christ. He gets all these tax collectors and sinners to come, and then he also invites Jesus. And he invites a couple disciples, a few disciples, four at this point. And in the same way, how many of us, perhaps, you know, when we throw some sort of a party, I remember a number of years ago, we invited for our, we had a Christmas party for our neighborhood. And it was interesting. You know, Andrew and I were the only Christians at that party as we had a bunch of different neighbors that came over and somebody brings wine and another person brings different. It's like, okay, this is different, but we're not used to this perhaps. And I'm not saying, you know, to have these controversial connections and these controversial parties to kind of show like, hey, Christians can have fun too. You know, I can pound them back like the best of them. You know, it's like, that's not what I'm getting at here. That's not the point of this. Jesus maintained his holiness in this environment. He did. He didn't, he didn't break any laws in what he was doing here. But he rubbed shoulders with those that needed to know him. Being, it's just really being salt and light in a room full of tax collectors and sinners. Have we ever thought of maybe doing that? You know, we have, in the foyer, we have a, um, a map in the foyer with our global workers. So these are missionaries that we support on a monthly basis that do missions work all over the world to reach people that don't know Jesus. You know, not too long ago, um, just uh, they've been back only for a few weeks now, Dana and Michaela went to Costa Rica for a little bit of a scouting mission to see perhaps if we could, as a church, take some people there for a missions trip, perhaps. I fully believe and support in overseas missions. I, I believe in it 100%. That's why we support our missionaries. But we can never forget that the mission field isn't just overseas. There's a church in Kelowna. I, I think it's Evangel Church. I'm pretty sure it's this church. Um, the doors, when you're leaving to go outside, there's actually a, a plaque right at the doors that says, you are now entering the mission field. You are now entering the mission field. And that's the reality is that we meet in here. You, you guys, this should be like a training room. This isn't a safety room, right? This isn't a safe room where we can hide. This is a training room where we can be built up, where we can be challenged to be more like Christ and then we then leave those outside, those doors to go outside and we enter into the mission field. That is the reality. We are just to be assistants to our doctor, to Dr. Jesus, to help him. Well, the second conflict now that we're going to see is surrounding, uh, surrounding a controversial covenant. Look at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why, there it is, that word, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the Old, the old Testament, which contained the Old Covenant, that probably the easiest way, these are kind of big words in a sense, the, the Old Covenant is probably best described as the old way of relating to God. That's kind of the easiest way to maybe think of it. And in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God had prescribed one day, only one day a year, had he commanded that the nation of Israel was to fast. One time a year. Fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And that was to recognize, to mourn their sin, to recognize that I am in need of help, I'm in need of a savior, I need a sacrifice to pay the price for my sin. But only one time were they commanded to mourn. However, in the Old Testament, we also read about numerous times that they did fast on other days too. And it was primarily, again, to, to display mourning, mourning for sin. That was kind of the, the primary idea be, behind a fast. Uh, if you think about, we just finished the book of Zechariah as a church. And if you remember in Zechariah, um, there was, um, 
there was that delegation, do you remember, that they sent to Jerusalem, do you remember this? And they had the question about the fasting, do you remember? And they had said, hey, um, can you just tell us, do we need to keep our four, they did four fasts, do we need to remember, does God want us to keep doing these fasts? And do you remember what God's response was? He's like, I didn't tell you to do them in the first place, right? And there was those four fasts that they had. The one fast was to commemorate or to mourn when Jerusalem came under siege, And then they had another fast, another time of the year, where they would commemorate when the walls were broken down. And then they had another fast when they commemorated and mourned the fact that the temple was destroyed. And then they had another, a fourth fast, where they commemorated and remembered and mourned when they were sent out into exile, into captivity. These four fasts of these times of mourning. So that was kind of the primary idea behind the fasting. Also in the Old Testament, we know that they also fasted at different times to basically petition or ask God to intervene in some way for some sort of crisis. It was kind of like trying to convince God maybe to change his mind about something or or to obtain his favor in some way. I think of it this way. I think the, the old covenant fasting generally comes with this idea. It's basically like saying, look at me. It's kind of like, look at me. Look, I'm really serious, God. That's kind of what it's saying. And if you're unaware, fasting, I'm sure many of you are aware, but fasting is simply denying ourselves, usually food, primary time is primarily it's food, uh, basically d- denying ourselves um, as some sort of a, a physical need to set it aside for a spiritual need, in a sense. And that's kind of the idea behind the fasting. So in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant, fasting was always to mourn or to obtain God's favor or mercy. So with that in mind, now look at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast makes total sense, doesn't it? Are you, how many of you are going like, what on earth is he talking about? How does it go from why do your disciples not fast to, well, it's because we're at a wedding? What, like, what, what's going on? Who's the bridegroom here? He says this. He says, how can they fast? How can my disciples fast when the bridegroom's, who's the bridegroom? The bridegroom's with them. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Well done. Jesus is the bridegroom. And he's saying this. He says, well, I am with them. It's like a wedding. That's the idea here. It's like a wedding. How many of you ever been to a wedding where they require that you fast? Anybody? Right? If you go to a wedding and they're like, we're going to be fasting this time. They're like, how cheap are these people? Right? It's like, they don't even provide Ritz crackers. What's going on here? Because a wedding is not a time to fast. It's a time to feast, to celebrate, right? It's a time to feast. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, the groom is here. I'm with them. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time to feast. In fact, Jewish weddings in their culture, um, we think of a wedding now and we think like a great, you know, Saturday, it like begins at like maybe noon and goes until like 10 o'clock at night. It doesn't even hold a candle to a Jewish wedding. A Jewish wedding went for a week, a whole week. They had a wedding ceremony and they partied. That was the, the number one goal of a Jewish wedding was to have a good time. That's all it was about. Have a good time. In fact, the rabbis, the rabbis even said that if you are at a Jewish wedding, they said, that, and, and the commands of God kind of get in the way of you having a good time in some way, you don't actually have to adhere to them. They literally said that. So for instance, it doesn't mean like you can just kill your neighbor because that's really fun. But what they meant was this. Like, that's, it's like, so don't get all like, whoa, they could do whatever they want. No, it wasn't that they could do whatever they want. But if it's, for instance, it goes for a week. So over the course of that week, I guarantee you they are going to be having a wedding on the Sabbath. They're going to be celebrating on the Sabbath. Let's say it's the Sabbath and they all of a sudden run out of food. 
the rabbis are like, normally they would say, you can only go a very short distance from your home on the Sabbath. And you can never buy or sell things on the Sabbath. They would say this. They would say, you know what? Though normally God, by God's standards, we would say you're not allowed to do that. They'd say, you run out of food on the Sabbath, you go as far as you need, and you buy as much as you need. Do you understand what they're getting at here? They're like, you do whatever is necessary to celebrate, to have a good time together. And so Jesus is saying, that, hey, this is a time right now for feasting and not for fasting. However, we do know that Jesus did fast. He had a practice as well of fasting. In fact, look at what he also says in verse 20. So he goes on to say that he establishes it that we're in this time where we're with him present, it's like a wedding. But he says this, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will, what does it say? Fast in that day. Jesus fasted and he said, and so will his disciples when he's taken away from them. Interesting. You see, Jesus was ushering in something new. He was ushering in a new day. It's also known as the new covenant. Jesus' death and his resurrection inaugurated the new covenant, a new way of relating to God. And the simplest way to kind of think of it is, is kind of like this. It, it boils it down a little too simply, but this, this will help you think of it this way. The old covenant basically was based on what I did for God. It, ba- it was based on what you did for God. And so therefore you would fast and mourn to obtain God's mercy and favor in your life. That was kind of the general idea. The new covenant, however, that was the old covenant. The new covenant is based instead on what Jesus did for God on our behalf. And that changes everything about how we now relate to God. It's a completely new way in Christ. Do you, do you see what Jesus is getting at here? It's a new way, a new way of doing things. This is what he says. He goes on to basically explain how the new way is not going to fit with the old way. And he illustrates it here, beginning in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Well, how many of you, remember years ago, it's not as much of a problem anymore, I think because, I think there's better materials perhaps that we work with, but when you ever, maybe you bought like a souvenir shirt. Anybody ever bought like a souvenir t-shirt from somewhere? It's like, New York City, Big Apple, or whatever kind of thing, right? And you have that shirt, and you wear it while you're on your holidays and your vacation, and, and then you get home, and you wash it and dry it, and you pull it out, and it's like, well, now that doesn't even fit my baby, right? Why? Because it was like cheap garbage, souvenir shirt, and it wasn't probably pre-shrunk cotton, kind of the idea, right? And, and so this is the idea that he's kind of getting at. If you've got, let's say you've you got a pair of old Levi's, and, and you get a hole or a tear in that Levi, and they've been washed and dried hundreds of times, and so they've shrank, they're done, they're shrinking. And then you have a tear. And so you, what he says now, let's say you take one of those like souvenir shirt kind of things and you take a piece of material from that and you sew it onto that tear. What's going to happen when you wash and dry that pair of pants the next time? That, that material, that new material is going to shrink so bad that it's actually going to pull away and make the tear worse. That's what he's saying. And you see, he's, he's getting at this point that you see God's done a new thing. In Jesus, God was doing a new thing, and he, he was not just wanting to patch up the old covenant. The, he doesn't want to just fix the old covenant. He has an entirely new covenant. That's why it's called a new. It's not called the renewed covenant, right? It's not. It's called the new covenant. It's a new way that doesn't work with the old. And this actually was very controversial for the religious leaders to think about. He gives us another example in verse 22. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. I'm not a wine drinker, but I know people that make it. 
And I know this, that as new wine ferments, it expands a whole bunch, a lot. This is a picture of of a wine geyser that literally, I asked Mike on Friday, I said, hey, or Thursday, and he said, oh, and he sent me a couple pictures. This isn't actually his place, but um, that's a vineyard where I, I guess the fermentation, the yeast, as it begins to expand, blows, is it called a bung? It is. So the, it looks like a cork, but it's a bung. And it blows the thing off. And that's like the pressure. Look at that as it expands. I remember one time we were at Mike and Robin's house for, they call it a winemaker's dinner. And we were eating in their winery. And this is his ceiling in the winery, which normally is maintained a very precise temperature and everything. Well, that, that evening, there were so many bodies in there. It was getting pretty warm from all the body heat. And all of a sudden, as we're eating this fantastic meal, you hear this bang. And it's like, what? And, and, there's, and, you, and there's this geyser of wine coming out of one of his barrels. That's the stain from when it shot out of the barrel because of the pressure. And it starts kind of gushing out over the floor. It expands. And in the old days, the idea here that Jesus is communicating, they didn't use barrels in the old days. They would use an actual skin of an animal. And they would make like a skin, a wine skin is what it was called. And they would put that new wine into a new wineskin because as that wine ferments and expands, you got to imagine if, if that's what wine can do to a wooden barrel, think about what it would do to a skin. And it, it pushes the skin out as it expands. And so you need a new fresh skin for it to allow the expansion. And Jesus is saying this, if you take an, an old wineskin, one that's already been expanded, what's going to happen? You're going to fill it up. Is that wine's going to have any, is the skin going to have any more room to expand? No, it's going to, boom! It's just going to, did I scare anyone? I don't know if I did. Anyway, it's going to just, and it's going to, you're going to, he says, you're going to lose the wine, you're going to lose the skin, everything's going to be lost. And he's getting at this point here, is that you need a new way to contain the new thing that God is doing. You can't use the old format or the old way of thinking. The mercy and the grace that is found in Christ in the new covenant, he's saying it's not to be patched onto the legalistic old ways of Judaism, of the old covenant. The Holy Spirit that's poured out in the new covenant is not to be poured into old practices of relating to God. And he's saying, yes, there will be a time of fasting, but it's going to have a new way of doing it. Jesus, here's the thing, Jesus did not come to patch up your old life. You need to know that this morning. He came to give you a new life, a new life. And so you might be going, wait a minute, how does this really apply to fasting then? How does it relate to fasting? We do know that Jesus fasted while he was on this earth. And we also know here in verse 20, he says that they will fast, in fact, after he left. So we're, how, many, how many of us, of course, the Spirit of Christ is here with us, but is Jesus physically present with us now? No, he's not. Don't let anyone tell you that he is. Okay, he's not physically here present, right? He will be one day, and that's what we're going to go celebrate with him. It's known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. There won't be fasting at that one, I tell you. It's going to be a party. It's going to be a party, seven-year party. It's going to be amazing. The marriage supper of the Lamb. So how does this apply then to fasting? Well, we learned, we learned a little bit about that in this book that we began reading like 12-something years ago, something like that, Awakening. How many of you have actually read this book, Awakening? If you've been a part of our church for the, for the last 10 years at all, you would have read this book. Um, I'm going to order some more of these because it's probably one of the best books I've ever read on fasting and how it applies to us now today in the New Covenant. And so we can have some of these available for you if, um, if you'd like a copy. Easy, easy read. Really, really good. It's what actually kicked us off every January to take 21 days of prayer and fasting was this book. And I want to read to you, um, I, I have a little bit for the screen in a moment, but I want to read to you a little bit of the understanding here of how he explains. He, in the book, it actually says old school versus new school. Okay, and this is what he's talking about. Old school fasting or old covenant versus new covenant fasting. 
He says this, you'll find many accounts of people, even whole nations, fasting in the Old Testament for different reasons. Primarily, fasting had to do with mourning or getting God to intervene during a crisis. It had to do with convincing God to change his mind and obtaining favor from him. For example, in Joel 2, 12 to 14, the people said, essentially, we're going to seek God with fasting and with mourning, and maybe God will have mercy on us. We know the story of Jonah and the impending doom that was coming to Nineveh. Back then, people also fasted to show sorrow and repentance for their sins. So the people of Nineveh said, let's fast. Maybe God will change his mind. Jonah 3, 5 to 9. Now I have this for us now on the screen. I want to make it very clear that under the new covenant, fasting is not to get God to change his mind about something. Fasting is also not something we do to obtain favor or forgiveness. After you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your past, present, and future sins have already been forgiven. You don't need to fast to obtain favor or receive mercy because through Jesus you live in a continual state of God's mercy. Instead, fasting is a way of celebrating the goodness of God and that because of Jesus, we have already received God's mercy, forgiveness, and favor. Under the Old Covenant, old covenant the entire mindset was to do in order to become. But under the New Covenant, the operative principle is you already are, therefore, act like it. Rejoice and celebrate that Christ has set you free, Galatians 5.1. You don't have to fast for mercy. Instead, celebrate the mercy given to you as a free gift through your relationship with Christ. Under the new covenant, you don't fast to obtain the, fa the Lord's favor because you perpetually live in the favor of the Lord. Do you see the difference? He's got like a whole chapter kind of explaining how it applies between, old, uh, differentiates basically between old covenant and new covenant fasting. I kind of think of old covenant, the old covenant mindset of fasting was kind of like, like I already mentioned, like, God, look at me, I'm really serious. And I picture it kind of like tugging on his arm. That was kind of the idea or the mindset behind old covenant fasting. Like, God, kind of, I, I need this and I'm proving it to you, I really need it. Whereas the new covenant mindset is that fasting, like he says here, is celebrating what God has already done for us in Christ. We don't need to tug his arm. Why? Because look at what Ephesians 1, says, 1 3 says says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We don't need to tug God's arm. Why? Because in Christ we have all the blessings. That's what he's saying. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that in Christ all things are ours. It's a different mindset. It's a different way of thinking. And so, so new covenant fasting, the way I like to picture it is that it brings us back into alignment with what God wants to do. That's the key word, I think, with fasting in the new covenant is alignment. It aligns me with what God has already done in my life. It brings me back into alignment with what he's already done and wants to do. The old covenant and, and fasting was really about kind of me, about my works. The new covenant and new covenant fasting is about Christ, about about what he has done. Well, the third and the final conflict now that we're going to see this morning is controversial ceasing, or lack thereof, really. Verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Of course, there's no 7-Eleven in those days, so you couldn't just stop on your way to somewhere and pick up something, you know, slurpy on the way. And so they're hungry. They need some food. And so they begin to pick these heads of grain as they're walking through a field. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why, there's that word again, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? 
Now, at first reading, you might think, oh, they're stealing grain. That's what it kind of looks like here. They're stealing grain. That's not, in fact, why the Pharisees were angry. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 23, you can read about it, verse 25, it actually says that you're allowed to go into your neighbor's fields or vineyards or orchards and take what you need for yourself. It was actually part of God's law that we would share with one another. However, it very specifically says you are not allowed to take a sickle. In other, words, you, in other words, you can't start harvesting. It's like you can't go into your neighbor's, neighbor's field and just start you know, cutting down a whole bunch of wheat and being like, what are you doing? I'm allowed. No, God said you could just take what you, so like go into an orchard, you can take like a handful of grapes or, or an apple or whatever. You can take a bit of grain. And so the problem, it was allowed by the law. The issue that they were having was that the disciples were doing this on the Sabbath and they considered it to be working. See, to pluck the grain, they, they considered that to be reaping. That's work. And then what they would do is take that grain and they would begin to rub it between their hands or their fingers, right? To rub off the chaff and the, the husk. And they would consider that to be threshing. And then what you would do is you'd, you'd, you'd blow the, the light um, husk and the, and the chaff and it would be gone and you'd have the grain left. And they would consider that to be winnowing. Not a word of a lie. And then what you would do is you would eat it and they would consider that preparing a meal on the Sabbath. Technically, they, they were saying you're breaking four violations in every mouthful. That's what, they're kind of, that's what they kind of saw it as. Now, the truth is that they weren't actually breaking any of God's laws here. They were only breaking man-made laws. So we need to understand. You see, God had given the fourth command, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. It was to be a day where you ceased working to rest and to rejoice, to rejuvenate, to worship God, to be thankful for the week of work that you had, and now you stop and you recognize all that he has blessed you with. It was to balance out, really, it was a day of worship, really, to balance out a a week of work. That was the point of it. How many of you ever like to cease work? Anybody here liking, like, cease working? Some of you just don't work hard enough then, obviously. (laughs) All the farmers are like, right away. (laughs) I love it when I don't have to work. When I get to cease work, it's a good, how many think this is a good command where God says, I'm commanding you to rest? It was a good command to stop. But the religious leaders and the Pharisees instead, they made the Sabbath a day of work, essentially. That's essentially what they did with the Sabbath. From one short verse that God said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Do no work on that day. From that one short verse, do you know what? They made up 24 chapters of instructions on how to obey the Sabbath. They have what's called the Talmud, which is their interpretation of the law, how to practice and live out the law. They came up not with 24 pages, but 24 chapters on how to obey this one law. Do you know that, 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 um, that oftentimes a Jew actually looked forward to the end of the Sabbath so they could rest from the work of obeying that one law? <laughs> That's essentially what it, it came to. It's all because of what they would call fence laws. They were laws that they created like a fence to go around the main law so that you didn't break that law. So for instance, with the law of obey the Sabbath, keep it holy, they created, they put fences around that law so that you wouldn't accidentally break it in a sense. And so what they would do is things like this. They, 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 they came up with, with, um, with laws or fences that said, um, like on the Sabbath, they said you, you can't throw hot water over yourself on the Sabbath. Makes total sense, doesn't it? Here's the reason. Because if you threw hot water over yourself and it splashed on the floor, it might clean the floor. And you might be doing work then. Not a word of a lie. They said you couldn't drag a chair on the Sabbath. You'd have to pick it up. 
You couldn't drag it, though. If you drag a chair on the Sabbath, it might dig a rut in the ground. You're working. They said you couldn't even look in a mirror on the Sabbath. Because you know why? You might spot a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. Not a word of a lie. This is in the Talmud. And you might be tempted, and that's considered working. Isn't this crazy? They created rules so that you didn't break the rule. They weren't God's rules. You've got to understand that. These were man's rules that they had created, fence laws, so that you wouldn't break the rule. An example for today, maybe it would be something like, well, you know, God says don't watch TV on the Sabbath. Let's just use that for an example. What they would then say is, well, we, we're going to say then just don't watch TV ever. Do you see what they would do? They'd put a fence around it to say we're never, we don't ever want to come close to breaking that law. And so you can see now how the Sabbath ended up, it wasn't a day of rest at all. And this is why they thought the disciples had broken it, because they'd created all these crazy fence laws. So Jesus responds in verse 25, and he said to them, have you never read what David did? Isn't this great? Can you imagine how offensive this would be? Have you never read what David did? Can you imagine? These are the guys, don't forget, the Pharisees, the scribes, these are the people that felt like they were protecting the law of God. They're the ones that felt like we're protectors of those very readings that speak about David. And so he's implying that they have never even read the scriptures. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Just to be clear here, Jesus is not saying in any way that his disciples have broken any laws. That's not what he's getting at here. What he's pointing out is the fact that in God's will, there are times when other concerns, they take precedence over the letter of the law. It's what we would refer to as the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law. The spirit of the law, which means what was the idea or the spirit behind the giving of the law? Was the idea behind the giving of law that you would die? You should know this. No. No, well done. No, that was the other answer that you guys had at the start. No. Right? The idea behind the giving of the law, in fact, God mentions it over and over and over, was that you might live long and prosperous lives in the land that I am giving you. The spirit behind the giving of the law was that they would have life. And so, yes, David and his men did break the law because they were genuinely in need at that point. But the idea was here is that because it was to bless, it wasn't to be a burden. The law was given that people might live, not die. And if you know the story, David and his men are on the run. They've got no food and they're starving. And they eat bread that was meant only for the priest to be eaten. It broke the law of God. But in this one situation, God says, listen, that was okay. Because the spirit of the law is that you might have life. And he allows it. You got to know that David never again was like, well, I broke the law there. I got away with it. I'm going to do that again just because. Or he didn't just, you know, start breaking other laws because he got away with one, right? That's, the, the, the idea was, was that, that, that life was withheld here. Would you rather have had David starve, kind of, is what Jesus would be getting at. No king, the greatest king of Israel. The point is this, is that God is more concerned with meeting the needs of people than he is with protecting religious traditions. For example, maybe, maybe it's a Sabbath for you, and you take a day where you practice resting, and your neighbor phones you up, and, 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 and your neighbor phones and says, listen, my husband has had a heart attack. Can you take him to the hospital? And your response is, well, uh, uh, it's my day of rest. I can't really at the moment, but I'll tell you what. First thing in the morning, I'll take him down to the hospital. 
What would that be? Would that be the spirit of the law or the letter of the law? That'd be the letter of the law. That'd be the letter of the law. That's not about life. And so Jesus now continues with this idea in verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God created this idea of rest not to make our lives harder and bitter, but better and blessed. That's what he's getting at here. Sabbath was created for us not, he didn't create, God didn't create us for the Sabbath. That's what he's getting at. It's, it bends to our needs. Do you see that? Not the other way around. And if anyone would know when the Sabbath is violated, it's Jesus. We close now with this final verse, which is really the ultimate kind of, the ultimate kind of controversial statement that he pulls here in verse 28. So he then tops it off with this. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I mean, he totally just, I mean, that's called a mic drop right? He's like, I created the Sabbath. I'm Lord over the Sabbath, is what he's saying. He's claiming deity here. He's claiming all kinds of things. And if he rules over the Sabbath, he can determine the rules of the Sabbath. Do you see what he's saying? He rules over it. This morning, as we close and as we transition now to communion, listen, you you need to know this. It hit me as we were singing that song, Here I Am to Worship. Christ is calling you to follow him today. And maybe you're here and you're a bit of a Levi. Maybe you have a bit of a controversial past. As we were singing that song, Here I Am to Worship, it just hit me, you know, I I felt like there were people in this room this morning, I felt like the Lord said this to my heart, that there's people in this room that just feel like they've just, they've done some horrible, horrible things. And that, that they could really never be forgiven of that. That's old covenant thinking. The new covenant in Jesus says that all come and follow. He calls all of us because his blood can cover over any sin, no matter how big or small it might be. And so you might be here this morning, you might have a controversial past. Listen, no matter your background, no matter how messed up it might be, I want you to know that Jesus is calling you to follow him this morning. And if you've answered his call to follow, I also want to challenge you with this. Are you going to those that are maybe a little bit controversial in connections sometimes? How are you connecting with those that don't know him? Because in Jesus, it's a new way to relate to God. It's a new covenant. It's all represented here in this juice and this bread. That Christ has made a new way for us to relate to God. And maybe this morning you're here and you've been relating to God with an old mindset, an old covenant kind of thinking based instead upon what you do instead of what Jesus has done. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. I want to invite you this morning to come and actually to celebrate, to celebrate the work of of Christ that he has done for us, to come to him to receive a true Sabbath rest in him. As we just prepare this morning to receive communion, I I want to give you that opportunity today, wherever you might be, whatever's going on, to prepare your hearts to receive. I'm going to invite those um, that are going to be serving with me this morning, if they would just, on either side, just come and uh, just be ready and then I'll give you the elements in a moment but can we just prepare our hearts this morning Lord I just ask I, I, first of all I want to thank you that no matter our past no matter our history no matter what we've done no matter where we've been God that there is no sin that is too big for you to forgive that with man yeah it's impossible but I thank you that with God all things are possible and Jesus, I just, want to, I, just, I just pray that right now your spirit would be drawing those that are in this room 
that maybe have not answered the call to follow you or maybe are joining us online. And you're saying, listen, I know what you've done. I saw all of it. And I still gave my life in your place. So that as we sang that song, here I am to worship, you'll never have to know what it cost because Jesus took your place so that you didn't have to. And he's calling you today, whatever your past is, whatever the background, to come and to take part in his body that's represented by the the juice and the bread. It's not magical. It doesn't transform. It's just a picture, a representation. But he's calling you to come and partake of that in the work that he did on your behalf. And so maybe you're here this morning and and today's the day that you're going to begin to say, I'm following you now, Jesus. I'm going to do that. I encourage you to to take that step of faith by representing that, by just coming forward when the time is right, the time is ready to receive. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've put your faith in Christ, but you're still relating to God with an old covenant mindset. Come and be transformed today with the work that Jesus has done for you. Allow him to be the one that connects you to God, not works not special observances or traditions. Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for the work that you did. And I do, I pray for anybody in this room this morning or joining online that has not decided to follow you, that has not answered the call, that today would be that day. I pray that they would get up from their seats when when I asked to and, and that they would come forward and receive communion a picture, a a visible picture and remembrance of the work that you did for us on that cross through your death and through your resurrection. Lord, speak to us, show us, God, and reveal perhaps even now, just as we're waiting and preparing, Lord, are are we relating to you with an old or a new covenant mindset? Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.